go to um, just to a portion of scripture found in the Gospel of Luke. Go to the Gospel of Luke, if you will. If you're not familiar with, with that, it's in the New Testament. It's probably 75-80% through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These tell the story of Jesus. And we're going to look at a little one of these. I want to talk to you about the beauty of sonship. The beauty of sonship and what that means. We've taught on, on sonship. It's been a couple of years ago, but I feel that it's just so integral to, to our DNA as a church. The idea of identity. So much of, of our calling is, is rooted in, in identity. And the gospel writers want to, they want us to, to fully understand who the beloved son is. And I was, I was, even in this recent season, I'm just, I sense from the Lord, the Lord is saying it matters who Jesus is. It matters who he is. It mattered profoundly to the gospel writers that they clearly articulated the truth of who Jesus was. It mattered to the early church. The, the, the term is Christology. It's the study of Christ. The early church spent years and years and years just wrestling through this understanding of, of who is the Son? How does the Son relate to the Father? How does the Son relate to the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that He is both human and both divine, all wrapped up into one? You know, and, and much smarter men than you are, than you are, and men and women smarter than you or I spent so much time just trying to process through because it matters. Who Jesus is matters profoundly. And we're, we're, we're in a place in our culture where we're seeing a lot of, of, of what's called deconstruction happening, a lot of deconstruction of the faith. If you Google that word, deconstruction, you know, you're going to find story after story of so many people who are, who are basically re-examining their Christian faith. They're, they're deconstructing it. They're tearing it apart piece by piece. Um, because of whatever issue they've had with it in the past. And many of them are finding that in the pieces, the rubble left of deconstruction, Jesus is not the person that, that they always uh, thought he, he was. He was essentially just another person or, or, or a good teacher or, you know, uh, just nobody, no, no one different than you and I. It matters who the Son was. True doctrine matters. Truth matters in our culture. So we have to, we have to build our foundation of, of, of our own faith on a good understanding of who is the Son of God, who is the person of Jesus, and what does is, what is the Word say about Him. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at this story here in, 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 in Luke chapter 3 of Jesus the Beloved Son. I love, I love this story of, of the baptism of Jesus because it's one of the few places in, in the Gospels where you get to see... The, 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 the perfect trinity all together in, in, in one encounter. You get to see you know, the person of Jesus. You get to see the Son. You get to see the Father. You get to, to, to see the Holy Spirit all coming together. It's just such a rare glimpse of, of who Jesus is. We're going to look at this together. All three are involved. And um, I want to give a little bit of background, but, but I also want to kind of point out a couple things of, of why this matters to us. Let me catch my breath. Let me pray for us, too. I want to pray before we get going. And while I'm praying, Meg, could you hand me that bottle of water? Because I have no idea where it is. I probably kicked it rolling around somewhere. Let me pray for us, though. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we bless your name today. We thank you today, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we want to, to, we want to read your word. We want to understand your word. We want to be transformed by your word. We want to be sent out by your word. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but also to be doers of it. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, at the beginning of Luke, we meet, first of all, before Jesus comes on the scene, Really, you're going to meet this guy named John, John the Baptizer. They call him that because John just had this incredible calling. By the way, he was Jesus' cousin. If you didn't know that, he was Jesus' cousin. John had this prophetic calling. He sort of spent so much time in the wilderness just seeking after the heart of God. You know, when he's coming into ministry, he's dressed like a crazy person. He's wearing locusts or, or, or you know, the, the skin of animals and eating locusts and honey. But he's, he's prophesying and he's preaching news of he's calling the Jewish people to repentance. And he begins to baptize them in the Jordan River, a baptism of repentance. So he calls them to come around. You know, he announces that the kingdom of God is coming. You need to repent and come on. So the people would come and they would be drawn to the teaching of, of, of John. And they would say, what, you know, what do we need to do? And he would say, come and be baptized. Repent of your sins. And for, for, for Jewish people in the first century, it's a little bit unusual. You know, we, listen, we'll, we'll do the ceremonial bathing, but we don't need to go to the Jordan River and be baptized because we're good Jewish people. John says, no, you need to be baptized, a baptism of repentance. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it says this. He went into the, this is in, in chapter 3, verse 3. He went into the country, all, all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I wrote this in my Bible. A baptism of repentance prepares us for a baptism of presence. I need to know that a baptism of repentance is just the beginning of what God wants to do in you and through you. There is more to the Christian life than simply being forgiven of your sins. That is a clear thing all through Scripture. God wants to do so much more than just to you know, wipe the slate clean and let you start over. God, God wants to give you a baptism of repentance, but also, as John is about to tell us, there's a greater baptism that he wants to do. So he goes on to talk about this. He quotes Isaiah. Um, he says this, uh, the people were waiting expectantly. We're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. They're all expecting the Messiah. They've been waiting for 400 years for the Messiah to come. And they all have these different expectations of who's the Messiah going to be? What's he going to look like? What's he going to do? They were just, whatever their expectation, they were hoping that he was just around the corner. They needed him to come. They needed him to be there. They needed the Messiah to show up and to restore Israel to her former glory, to kick out the invading army, the Roman occupation, and to establish Israel as God's chosen people on the earth the way that they were destined to be. So where is the Messiah? Why can't he get here? So they're looking at John saying, John, are you the one? And he says this, John answered all of them. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Straps of sandals being untied is the position of a slave. This is what household doulas, household slaves would be responsible for this. If I were to go and I, I were to visit Brian's house and he would have several slaves around, they would be attending to me when I would come in. My feet would be dirty from my journey. You know, I didn't have on these, these, these shoes. I would have open-toed sandals, and my feet would probably be kind of dusty and gross, and the slaves would come and wash my feet off before I would go into his nice, clean house. 
That's a lowly position, right? John says, look, you don't understand. Someone is coming. I'm not even worthy to be the slave that washes his feet. You don't understand who's, who's around the corner. I'm baptizing you with water. This is good stuff, and you need to have this done. But there's another person who's going to give you another baptism. He says, the, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I bet they just look at him like, what in the world are you talking about? Fire, the Holy Spirit, you know. And so, soon after, in Luke's Gospel, sure enough, this one shows up. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Let's pause right there. And this is, this is a curveball. God's good at throwing curveballs at us. Jesus is good at throwing curveballs our way. And he kind of messes with them, you know. And, and it's like, eh. You know, and the other Gospels, not Luke, but the other Gospels say that John had a bit of a problem with this. He's like, you know, John knows who Jesus is. John says, Jesus, look, I can't baptize you. You are, <laughs> you're it. You know, I, I can't take you in. You don't even need to be baptized. You've not done anything wrong. Jesus, I know you. We're cousins. We grew up together. You know, I'd stub my toe and I'd curse and you wouldn't do anything. You were like, good. You are a good kid. You don't need to be baptized for repentance. And Jesus, you don't understand. I need to do this to fulfill all of right, all righteousness. In other words, John, don't get in my way. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to show you the way to be a beloved son. So, all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. Look, listen, look at this. I have never until this week noticed these, this next phrase. You ready for this? As he was praying, y'all say praying, heaven was opened. I, I know, right? It's like, we, you can preach on that alone. As he was praying, heaven opened. Why was he praying? What does this mean? He was getting baptized, you know? It's like, what are you doing? Jesus is in this posture of intimacy with the Holy Spirit all the time. He's in this place of, 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 he's in this place of intimacy with the Father all the time. And, and even as he's going under the water, he's in this place of, 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 of an open heaven before the Lord, before the Father. As he's praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, in bodily form, like a dove. So, technically, this is another incarnation of the Godhead. Not coming in human form, but coming in the form of a dove. So, the Bible says, don't, don't look at me, look, I'm not making this up. The Bible says that literally, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and lands upon Jesus. And then a voice comes from heaven, you're my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Those of you that have close relationships with your fathers, I have a close, I had a close relationship with my father. I guess I technically still do. He's, he's gone on. He's in heaven now, but I still have a relationship, I guess. Those of you that have relationship with good relationships with your fathers, you'll know 
how deeply you desire to please your Father, how deeply you want His affirmation and His blessing. And if you don't have a good relationship with your Father, you'll know how, how deep of a wound that can be to not have that. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And I made this note, why is the Father pleased? As if to say, Jesus hasn't technically done anything, you know? We, we often think that our Father's pleasure comes from whenever we do things the right way. You know, hey dad, look at me, I got an A on my test. Look at me, dad, I colored in the lines. Look at me, dad, I got promoted at work. Hey, I'm going to call up my dad and tell him about all these awesome things that I've done. You know, hey, I won this award, Dad. And, you know, your dad's will say, that's awesome, son. That's awesome, daughter. I'm so proud of you. You know, we can often tie the pleasure of our fathers into things that we've done, accomplished, performed, produced. But you need to know that this comes at a place when he has done nothing in terms of ministry or influence or outreach. This doesn't come at the end of feeding 5,000 people. This doesn't come at the end of healing someone on this itinerant tour of ministry. This doesn't come at the end of, of, his, of, his, of, his, of his journey to the cross. This comes at the very beginning before he does anything. Church, you need to hear me on this. That the Father loves you and I because we are valued as sons and daughters and no other reason than that. You have a value as a son of God. You have a value of a daughter of God. He is pleased with you independent of what you've done for Him. He takes delight in you regardless of how much you've measured up or not measured up. And he speaks this over the Son. You are my beloved Son. I love you. The voice, it's, like, it's, like, it's almost like God could not help. Could, he couldn't be silent. He's watching this and He's seeing you know, His Son just going under the water and He sees and He sends the Holy Spirit down. He said, Holy Spirit, go on. You need to go on. Go on and land. You need to let my Son know that I'm still near Him. The, 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 together we are. And He sends the Holy Spirit down. But it's almost like that's not enough. He's like, no, no, no. I need to speak His name. I need to say it. And this voice from heaven comes out, thunders from heaven and says, my beloved son, I love you and I'm so pleased with you. So, then it gets a little strange in Luke's gospel. Beginning in verse 23, Luke just gets really weird and boring. Meaning, he begins to unpack all of these names and these begats and these son of and this genealogy. It's like, oh my word, Luke, this is like an awesome story and now you're getting really boring. What's wrong with you? Do we really care who begat who and who's the son of who and who's the son of who? But it matters to Luke that we understand this. And he says this, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So Luke has already, the, the Bible has already said, you are my beloved son. In other words, he is the son of God. And Luke is about to say, but also you need to know, many people thought he was the son of Joseph. And Joseph was the son of someone else. And Joseph was the son of someone else. And Joseph was, in fact, I want to tell you, says Luke, every single one of those 
I want to trace his genealogy back, and there'll be a couple names that pop out to you. Like down in verse 31, it says he was the son of David, the son of you know David was David, you know, slaying a little boy in the rock and hits a giant and all that stuff. Jesus comes from his line. He is a descendant, a direct descendant of King David. That's pretty awesome. Goes on to his way back. Oh, he's from the tribe of Judah, says Luke. This is pretty significant. Keeps on going all the way to the, to the end. He says he's the son of Kenan, son of Enoch, son of Seth, the son of Adam. You know who Adam is. Adam is the first father, the son of God. And Luke's diversion... His list of names is important, I think, for three reasons. Number one is it establishes Christ as fully human. The readers of this need to know this is not just some mythical being who just materialized out of the thin air to save us from our sins. Luke wants you to know this man, Jesus, was born of flesh just like you and I. He's got grandparents and grandfathers all the way back. We can see that he actually comes from this Jewish line. It's important that we establish he is a truly human person. The second reason, not only is he a human being, but he also comes from a messianic line. That's why he points out David's name. This one who is going under the water and coming out is from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. I think the third reason is that it reinforces the value of family in the redemptive story. So I love things like this. We dedicate our children. These have a role to play in the story of the kingdom. God is calling your sons and your daughters and your children to play a role in the kingdom. He doesn't call them to wait until they're a lot older on. God wants to use ordinary families like yours and mine, no matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. God wants to use it for his purposes. And here's the cool thing. Adam was the son of God. We are sons of Adam, so what does that make us? Of, we're sons of God. We are sons. We are sons of God, y'all. And so Luke is sort of tying these things together. He there's the voice from heaven that says, "You are my beloved son." But Luke says, "But he's also the son of Joseph, flesh like you and I. He's also the son of Adam. Who Adam is the son of God. And like it's like tying all these things together. It's beautiful. Um, let me hit a couple things. The beauty of sonship." It does this. It brings us some. It brings us three things. I'm on threes today. It's a holy number. Come on. All right. It's almost 11:33. There we go. The beauty of sonship brings us three things. Number one is it brings us an identity independent of performance. I spoke on that just about three minutes ago. You need to know that the beauty of sonship for you, we're going to talk about sonship next week. Why not daughtership? Pastor Brad, you're so sexist. No, it matters, and I'll tell you next week why it matters. Don't get up on me. It's a beautiful thing. Hang with me. It brings you, first of all, an identity. You have an identity independent of your performance. I saw this quote one time that says, you know, the, the value of the person uh, is, is something like, you know, based on the impact that it has on others. It was meant to be this motivational quote. It was probably attributed to somebody incorrectly to like Mother Teresa, whatever, you know, and it's meant to sound good. Like, you know, you're, you're, you have value because of your relationships with the people. And I would say, no, that is not true whatsoever. You have value that is intrinsic to your being. 
independent of if you do nothing else. This is why the unborn baby in the womb matters. This is why pro-life matters. Because this baby in the womb has value even if they never breathe breath upon this life, even if they do nothing else, even if they don't have any influence, any relationships whatsoever, they matter because they're made in the image of God. And the beauty of sonship says you have an identity that is independent of your performance. That takes a lot of weight off me, y'all. I don't have to do anything. I get to do everything. I don't have to do anything. That's the first thing. The beauty of sonship brings you an identity independent. Here's the second thing. It brings you the privilege of an open heaven. We get to have this. When we pray, heaven opens, y'all. When we pray, heaven opens. I'm excited. I'm excited about that one. God is waiting. God is waiting to rend the heavens. God is waiting for His voice to come out. God is waiting to affirm and to send His Spirit and to minister His Spirit to us. Privilege of an open heaven. That comes from authority. When slaves pray, nothing happens. When sons pray, the heavens open. There's a big difference between being a slave and being a son. Slaves are driven by fear. Sons are drawn by love. We're not called to be slaves. We're called to be sons. We're given a spirit of sonship. Getting ahead of myself this next week. But we have authority that when sons pray, heavens open. Third thing is this. There is a, the beauty of sonship, the third thing it brings us, a presence on us and in us. Did I tell you about the dove? Did I mention that to you? Isn't it weird? You know, it's really cool. I heard some, I'm not going to take credit for this. I think I heard somebody else talking about it. Maybe it's Bill Johnson or somebody else earlier in the week. talks about how the significance of doves in the Gospels, you see them a couple of times. You see one of them here. You see another one when Jesus goes into the temple and he wrecks havoc and he kicks tail. Why? Because the doves are contained in cages. You know, you'll think about that. I'm thinking about that too. Like, what does that mean? It means the Lord wants to set the Spirit free to come and to rest on us. So, Gospel writers, Matthew goes out of his way to say that the dove didn't just come down. Matthew, the other Gospel writer, we're not reading his, but he says that the dove landed on Jesus. That's just kind of weird. Like this bird just flies up out of nowhere and lands on Jesus, but they would have understand what they would understand what it was. There's a lot of reference, you know, a lot of sort of images of Noah's Ark. You know, when the bird comes back and lands on the Ark, and Jesus has been in the Ark, and all this. Stuff. But here's the point: the beauty of sonship brings us a presence on us. The Spirit of God is upon us and in us. You're know, like, well, what's the difference in those two things? Well, we've done some teaching on that too. I, quoted, I mentioned Bill Johnson. He says this quote. I don't, I don't quote a lot of Bill Johnson. For those of you that know, I don't quote Bill Johnson all the time, like twice a year, but this today, I'm doing it twice. He says, the Spirit is on me for your sake, but He's in me for my sake. It's 
Spirit is on me, in other, words, in other words, coming upon me in supernatural power and authority for ministry so that I can minister the kingdom to you, that's why the Spirit is upon me. That's why He sends spiritual gifts. He is on me for your sake, but He's in me, transforming me, bringing the peace of God, bringing inner righteousness, making me holy as God is holy for my sake. And the Bible seems to indicate, look, don't take one without the other. We want the Spirit of God to be on us. We want the Spirit of God to be in us. And in Jesus, we're seeing the same thing happening. The Spirit comes and lands on him and, and, a boy, and, and bodily form like a dove. Verse 4 says, or chapter 4, at the end of this, at the end of the, the, the genealogies, chapter 4 begins with these six words. Jesus, comma, full of the Holy Spirit. So presence is on us and in us. The beauty of sonship. I, I, I want this. I want this to be so ingrained in our DNA as a church. Identity. 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 I want it to be biblical. I want to have a biblical understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus and what we're called to do. I don't want to be like off the rails, you know, like, you know, just, I don't, I, w- I want to be so grounded in the word, but I don't want to be anything less than what God, God calls us to be. I wrote this note. I said this, he became, he became as, and it rhymes, he became as we, comma, so that we might become as He. That's not a new thought. The early church wrestled with that a whole lot more than I did. But essentially it means is that in the person of Jesus, sonship has been transferred to us, shared with us. Second Peter chapter one talks about it. He says, he says, his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us through his own glory and goodness. He goes on to talk about we have these great and precious promises. In these we have great and precious promises so that y'all see, so that we might become participants, partakers, shareholders in the divine nature. Yo, that's just crazy. Uh, Peter, are you drinking, buddy? Too much wine? Peter says, no, 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 no. You understand. You understand what it means to belong to Christ. It means that we are drawn up into His very life. He is a son, and we can be sons too. The life that He has in God, we can have as well. doesn't mean that we are the same as God. He's got a totally different nature, totally different essence, but we can share in His divine nature as well. Let me just end with this. Um, and Mama Meg, if you will help get some bat, bat, baptized to be kids, soon to be baptized kids ready to come in. I told them at about 20 till. So we're going to be moving that direction. Musicians, y'all coming up too, all right? I want to say these things with you uh, for us here. The beauty of sonship brings you an, an identity independent of performance, the privilege of an open heaven, a presence honest and us. He became as we so that we might become as he. In Christ, in Christ, 
in Christ, you, church, are something extraordinary. You are something supernatural. You are dead, yet you're fully alive. You're unique, independent, beautiful individuals, yet you're swallowed up in God. Swallowed up in Him. I so want us in this season leading into Easter just to get a vision again of the beloved Son. To see Him again. I want you to see Him. I want you to encounter Him there in the water. Spirit coming upon Him. The voice of the Father coming upon Him. knowing that in His sacrificial death and resurrection there's, there's a sharing, there's an opening of that cloak of sonship to you and to I. There's a spirit of sonship, says Paul, that comes upon 